The following message is by Pastor Steve Clark of the Evangelical Free Church of Salt Lake City. More information is available at our website, www.slcevfree.org. Father, you are the giver of life. You are the sustainer of life. Ultimately, you are the taker of life. All of life is in your hands. And at times, you give us some new and maybe deeper understanding of that. We think about some of the events of yesterday and we see the whole spectrum. All in one day. Physical life from cradle to grave, even spiritual life. And I pray, Lord, that you would give us some sense of the weightiness of what life is. You say in your word that it is wise to go to the house of mourners. We come to understand something about life. I think we also can understand something about life in the presence of new babies and thinking about people's spiritual condition. There are many ways you can teach us. And Lord, I pray that you would teach us through these events and through others, through your scripture today, that you would teach us about life and its importance, the need to make the most of every moment, the need to be involved in your global cause of seeking and saving the lost, bringing glory to the name of Jesus in people's lives from one corner to the other of this world. Lord, for the particular people who are involved in these particular events that we celebrated yesterday or commemorated yesterday, would you give grace to them in different ways as needed? pray particularly for the Horton family, and I pray, Lord, that you would be present with them. With those who don't know you, would you give them a comprehension of you? Would you open their eyes and show them yourselves? Show them yourself. For those who do know you in that family, give comfort and peace. Give grace to them all, I pray. Lord, we come to your word today seeking to learn from you, seeking some sense of celebration of you and some sense of, of humbling before you. Would you be the teacher? Would you open eyes today? That's my hope and my prayer, that Christ would be exalted that we would be changed and grown and developed. Would you do that, Father? We pray this in Christ's name. Amen. Who do you think is a spiritual lost cause? Someone or perhaps a group of people who are just so far out there they are beyond the pale, they're beyond hope because of some attitude or some behavior, some particular sin, some ignorance. Something or another puts them way out there. I mean, not a little bit out here, out there. Beyond all hope. Who is that? Some, maybe an individual? Maybe a group? I know we're not supposed to think like that, but let's be honest, we all write people off. Who have you written off? An individual, perhaps, that is so hardened against Christianity so as to be perhaps a, a physical persecutor of Christians. A group of people who are so steeped in some sense of immorality or, or some worldview that Christianity seems just laughable and absurd to them. I find myself writing lots of people off. More than I should. <laughs> Shouldn't do it at all. I find myself doing it, and I am very confident I would have written off Saul the Pharisee. He's not just over here, he's way over here. Everybody would have written him off. A physical, a zealous, physical persecutor of Christians and of the church. Today, as we celebrate, commemorate Palm Sunday when Christ triumphantly entered into Jerusalem, coming into the city not to make war but on a donkey of peace, conquering people by peace. Today we have the opportunity to celebrate the remarkable, unbelievable 
conquering of Saul by Jesus. Conquers him in peace, but he does take him and claim him for his own. A lost cause if there ever was one. That's what we're going to be looking at today. And particularly what we're going to be looking at is grace in that process. When Jesus moves into, comes into, takes over Saul, it is an act of total sovereign grace. Remarkable grace. We're going to be focusing on that today. Over the last two weeks, we've been in in Acts chapter 8, and we've been seeing how the book has been developing the second stage that we've noticed in Acts. Acts 1.8 says that the gospel will be made known in Jerusalem, in Judea, Samaria, that's the second stage, and then to the ends of the earth. Well, chapter 8 has been the second stage with Philip in Samaria and then talking to the Ethiopian down in Judea. But we don't stay in the second stage very long. Even by the end of chapter 8, we see Philip in Azotus traveling up the coast to Caesarea. Those are Gentile places. So we're already moving beyond stage 2 to stage 3 at the end of chapter 8. And in chapter 9, with this moving in on and conquering of Saul, we see a significant piece of stage 3 fall into place. Saul is God's chosen instrument to carry the gospel to the Gentiles. And how he comes to faith is remarkable. A remarkable act of grace. Let me read the passage. We'll look at it here. And understand that as I'm reading, we're talking about Saul. This is the man, same man whose name was later changed to Paul. So the names will go back and forth this morning. We're talking about the same guy, Saul and Paul. Same person. So let me read Acts chapter 9, verses 1 to 31. But Saul, still breathing threats and murder against the disciples of the Lord, went to the high priest and asked him for letters to the synagogues at Damascus, so that if he found any belonging to the way, men or women, he might bring them bound to Jerusalem. Now, as he went on his way, he approached Damascus, and suddenly a light from heaven flashed around him. And falling to the ground, he heard a voice saying to him, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? And he said, Who are you, Lord? And he said, I am Jesus, whom you are persecuting. Rise and enter the city, and you will be told what you are to do. The men who were traveling with him stood speechless, hearing the voice but seeing no one. Saul rose from the ground, and although his eyes were opened, he saw nothing. So they led him by the hand and brought him into Damascus. And for three days he was without sight and neither ate nor drank. Now there was a disciple at Damascus named Ananias. The Lord said to him in a vision, Ananias, and he said, Here I am, Lord. And the Lord said to him, Rise and go to the street called Straight, and at the house of Judas look for a man of Tarsus named Saul. For behold, he is praying And he has seen in a vision a man named Ananias come in and lay his hands on him so that he might regain his sight. But Ananias answered, Lord, I have heard from many about this man, how much evil he has done to your saints at Jerusalem. And here he has authority from the chief priests to bind all who call on your name. But the Lord said to him, Go, for he is a chosen instrument of mine to carry my name before the Gentiles and kings and the children of Israel. For I will show him how much he must suffer for the sake of my name. So Ananias departed and entered the house, and laying his hands on him, he said, Brother Saul, the Lord Jesus who appeared to you on the road by which you came has sent me so that you may regain your sight and be filled with the Holy Spirit. And immediately something like scales fell from his eyes, and he regained his sight. Then he rose and was baptized, and taking food he was strengthened. For some days he was with the disciples at Damascus, and immediately he proclaimed Jesus in the synagogue, saying, He is the Son of God. And all who heard him were amazed and said, Is not this the man who made havoc in Jerusalem for those who call upon this name? And has he not come here for this purpose, to bring them bound before the chief priests? But Saul increased all the more in strength and confounded the Jews who lived in Damascus by proving that Jesus was the Christ. When many days had passed, the Jews plotted to kill him, but their plot became known to Saul. 
They were watching the gates day and night in order to kill him. But his disciples took him by night and led him down through an opening in the wall, lowering him in a basket. And when he had come to Jerusalem, he attempted to join the disciples. And they were all afraid of him, for they did not believe that he was a disciple. But Barnabas took him and brought him to the apostles and declared to them how on the road he had seen the Lord who spoke to him, and how at Damascus he had preached boldly in the name of Jesus. So he went in and out among them at Jerusalem, preaching boldly in the name of the Lord, and he spoke and disputed against the Hellenists, but they were seeking to kill him. And when the brothers learned this, they brought him down to Caesarea and sent him off to Tarsus. So the church throughout all Judea and Galilee and Samaria had peace and was being built up, and walking in the fear of the Lord and in the comfort of the Holy Spirit, it multiplied. passage opens up with Saul again, zealous and furious. Saul is repeatedly described as, in very alarming terms, he's described in chapter 8 as ravaging the church. We saw that there, like a wild beast would ravage its prey. Here he's said to be breathing out threats of murder. You should picture like a bull or a stallion who's snorting as it stamps the ground in anger. And later in the chapter, he's said to be one who made havoc, a word that again contains senses of violence. He's making havoc amongst the saints. And as he describes it himself later in Galatians 1, an important parallel passage here, he says that he was violently persecuting the church, trying to destroy it in his extreme zeal. So Saul is not a nice guy. And he is not remotely not remotely disposed towards Christianity. If you were to come up to him and say, Saul, I'm a Christian, and in a couple of days you are going to be one as well, he would have first thought you were crazy and then tried to have killed you. He's not remotely seeking after Jesus. He's not remotely interested in this. Not in any way is he inquiring. He's not even neutral. He is totally against this way. It's an early name for Christianity. He's as against it as one possibly can be. He is a lost cause, if there ever was one. And he's not even just content to be against it in Jerusalem. The reason he's on his way to Damascus, you see in the text there, he's chasing it down. He wants to stamp this thing out. He's very aggressive in this. His extreme zeal. But a funny thing happens on the way to Damascus pursuing the followers of this blasphemous Jesus. Jesus appears to him shining from heaven and strikes him down dead in judgment. No. That's not what happened. And that's remarkable. We've read this, you know this story, so you miss what's remarkable in it. What should Jesus have done? Appeared from heaven and struck him down dead in judgment but he doesn't. That's not how it goes. Jesus appears to him in a shocking revelation of glory. Paul tells this story later in in chapter 26 and says that it was actually physically Jesus that he saw for a moment before he went blind. He appears in shining, blazing, lightning glory. Heavens peeled back and Saul sees him. And all of them, it says later, all of them were knocked down temporarily. The others got up, but Saul is immobilized on the ground, captivated by this vision. And it says to him, this vision, he doesn't know what it is, Saul, Saul, echoing the calls in the Old Testament, Moses, Moses, Samuel, Samuel, what are you doing? It's a rhetorical question. What are you doing? And he knows he's talking to something or someone divine. He just says, who are you, Lord? And the answer clears up everything and simultaneously must have been terrifying. Who are you, Lord? I am Jesus. Now, grammatically, it's the perfectly normal way to say I am Jesus. That's how you'd say it in Greek. But in this context, with the heaven peeled open and the voice from heaven and the shining glory, I am Jesus. It's the name of the Lord from the Old Testament. You read in the Old Testament, L-O-R-D, all in capital letters. 
the name of the Lord Jesus says, I am Jesus. So it's perfectly normal, but in this context, I have to think that Saul heard something else. And he certainly sees something else, and it must occur to him, oh my God, it's true. And I'm in trouble. He is who they say he is. Oh my God. I have been making war against these Christians, but I actually have been making war against God. Why are you persecuting me? says Jesus. Not why are you persecuting them. He's so closely connected to his people. He so closely identifies with the suffering of his people that it is his own. Saul's attacking them and he's attacking God and he just realized that. Oh my God. What's going to happen here? Well, he's got Saul's attention, but he does not kill him or strike him dead. And he doesn't so crush his personhood that he turns him into some sort of a, of a, a robot or a machine. He's talking to him. What are you doing? Saul, what are you doing? It's me, Jesus. Now get up, go into the city, I've got a message for you. Now in other accounts, this is such an important story, it's told twice more in the book of Acts by Saul, Paul, and then it appears several times in his letters later, different aspects of it. We learn more about what was said there, but here, this is all we have here. He says, get up, go into the city, I've got something for you. And so he gets up blind, probably, I mean he's physically blind, it's probably symbolic as well as blindness often is in the ministry of Jesus, probably symbolizing how he's spiritually blind and needs to have that spiritual blindness removed. But he gets up blind and is led into the city, humbled before the Lord. He fasts and prays for several days, waiting for God to remove the blindness. Meanwhile, in the city, God is sovereignly at work in someone else's life, a man named Ananias. appears to him in a vision as well, going to use this means here to accomplish an end, just like he always does, very often does. Ananias, I want you to go over to a certain house on a certain street. He gives him directions. I realize that Saul's come to town. Saul's probably staying with people who are somewhat sympathetic to his viewpoint. So he's literally walking into the lion's den. I want you to go into the room where this guy Saul from Tarsus is. I want you to do something. I want you to lay your hands on him. He's praying. He's my chosen instrument. And Ananias balks at this because he's heard about Saul. Everybody's heard about Saul. Are you sure? that He's not on our team, God. And that's going to be rather suicidal for me to go do that. Yes, he's my chosen instrument. He's not a volunteer. If you just read the story, you realize Saul didn't volunteer. Saul got picked. He's my chosen instrument to carry my name to the Gentiles, stage three. Go, minister to him. So Ananias does. He does as he was commanded. Saul regains his sight, sees, is filled with the Holy Spirit, is baptized, presumably by Ananias. Just as with the Samaritans, with Peter, we see God using an instrument here, a human instrument, to lay hands on someone to give them the Spirit. Just as was going on then, this is all about confirmation. God does not need to use Ananias. He's capable of not using means. He just appeared out of the clouds to Saul. Now, he'd use a lot of means in Saul's past, surely, but he just suddenly appeared out of the clouds to Saul. He could have done anything to him, but he chooses to use Ananias to go do this, to lay his hands on him and pray for him that he would receive the Spirit, receive his sight, to baptize him. Why? Well, think about what it would be like for the church if Ananias wasn't involved in this. We can look ahead and see what it was still like for the church in Jerusalem even after Ananias was involved in this, even after he had a little bit of a track record. If Saul walks out of this house one day and says, you know, I'm a Christian now and I want to go hang out with the church, nobody's going to believe him. Surely that has to be a scheme for us to reveal ourselves so that he can gather us all together. But you involve Ananias, and Ananias says, I had a vision. 
God appeared to me, told me to go to a certain place and do certain things. It was just like he said. I found the guy just where he was in just the condition he was. I put my hands on him and prayed. The scales fell off, and he received the Spirit just like us. This is of God. It's confirmation. He's using Ananias to show, I actually have claimed Saul. Even Saul, lost cause that he was. Ananias does it. Saul's brought in. See a couple of things happening then, verse 21 and 22 and following. He's preaching now in the synagogues. and I mean, everybody's shocked by this. Can you imagine the first time he walks into the synagogue, everybody in the synagogue knows what they're going to hear, and they hear the exact opposite from him. I thought you were sent here to arrest people who say what you're saying. And now you're saying it? And by the way, that seems pretty sound. He's on his own turf, arguing from the inside out. He knows all of this stuff. What a marvelously prepared instrument. He knows it all, and he turns it right inside out and is arguing in the synagogue with Jews that Jesus, in fact, is the Son, the Messiah. And he's confounding people because they would love to be able to stop it, but they can't. The, the argument of, that's not true because... Eventually, it doesn't work. It does when you've got kids, because I said so, but when you're arguing with adults, you've got to have reasons, and Saul's got a lot of good reasons. He's a really effective communicator, a really effective arguer. Boy, Jesus picked a good guy. Well, they're so angry that they want to kill him. He's driven out of Damascus. There, you see a couple of vague time references in here, in verses 19 and 23, for some days, when many days had passed. Luke's not real concerned to give us a timeline here, but if you compare this to Galatians, you realize that actually three years pass right here. Perhaps not three full calendar years, but a span over three years, during which he leaves Damascus, goes to Arabia, comes back to Damascus, then goes to Jerusalem. So there's a lot of time that's passed in here where Saul's had a lot of ministry experience, he's learned a lot, he's continuing to minister, continuing to preach, Growing in strength, probably spiritual strength as well as knowledge, understanding of how these things fit together. When he comes to church in Jerusalem, years have passed and they still don't believe it. So shocking is this. We take it for granted. We read all Paul's letters. We know he's a Christian. You understand, when you put the, the timeline into this, years have passed and they still think it's a scam. Because they just cannot believe that lost cause Saul Saul would be saved. Well, Barnabas comes along, introduces him to the apostles. He is welcomed in for a brief period, preaches up a storm in Jerusalem. They want to kill him. And so the brothers finally ship him off to Caesarea and then to his hometown in Tarsus, Gentile lands. He's sent out by persecution even to the Gentile lands. This man who was the pursuer of the fugitives to persecute them is now the pursued, persecuted fugitive, chased to Gentile lands. And the church has peace. Verse 31 I'm going to largely address next week. This week we're going to be focusing just on Saul and what happens in Saul's life. This is such an important event. As I said, it's told several times in the book of Acts and then throughout the rest of the New Testament. What are we to learn from it? It's not just, I've said this before, history in the Bible is not just FYI history. So you know, here's what happened. There's a point to it. There's something that we're supposed to learn. What is it? We, we need to read this story, as you should read all the Bible, and say, what do I learn about God here, and how am I supposed to respond to that? Well, look at this. What do we learn about God? What comes out to us about God and his working here, and how should we respond? You put it like this. I think the main point that we should be taking out of this story of Saul's conversion, there are several minor things we could learn, but the main point, let me put it like this, we should praise, hope in, and tell of the glorious grace of God. Praise, hope in, and tell of the glorious grace of God. Grace that saves lost causes, saves lost causes 
for the sake of saving other lost causes. Where is he sent? To the Gentiles. Boy, they're a lost cause too, from Israel's perspective. This is grace here that saves for the sake of saving others. And we should praise God for that. Trust in it to be still active today and tell of it everywhere. It's the main point we're working towards this morning. I'm going to approach this text by asking it two questions. Asking and answering two questions and work towards that main point. Here's the first question. How is Saul saved? Read the story. How is Saul saved? And I'm not getting at the play-by-play anymore. We've already done that. What I mean is, how did this come to pass? What caused it? And the answer is, he is saved by the sovereign grace of God. Saul is saved by the sovereign grace of God alone. Not joined to any work that he does, not joined to any effort that he does, not in any outreaching or seeking or hoping in himself. It is the sovereign grace of God all by itself alone that saves him. Grace is an unearned, undeserved, unmerited blessing or favor from God. And we can extend grace to one another. I'm talking about in this context, spiritual context, grace from God is by definition unearned. It is never an obligation on God's part. If it is an obligation, it's not grace. It's a payment of some sort. All by itself, it is a blessing given from God. And he gives all kinds of blessings. The fact that you're going to draw another breath here in a second is grace from God. You don't deserve that, but he gives it to you. And again and again, there's all kinds of grace. We're focusing on saving grace here. Saving grace, undeserved. Clearly, the blessings given to Saul in Acts chapter 9 are undeserved. What does he deserve? Just like us. What he deserves is wrath and punishment. Period. That's it. That's all that he deserves. That's all that he's earned. But astonishingly, God gives him grace instead. Something that he'd never dreamed of, in no way even asked for or imagined. He gives him salvation. He gives to Saul Christ and his cross. Which Saul scorned, but God gives it to him. He gives him a relationship with Jesus. Jesus speaking to him, relating to him, talking to him. He gives Saul the spirit living inside of him. He gives him relationship with the body here and forever. He gives him a purpose in life. We'll come to that a little later. There is grace after grace after grace, all unearned, all given by God in saving him. Washes away his sin, fills him with the spirit. Gives him a new life direction. This is amazing. He saves him spiritually. He also saves him physically here. We see that in a couple ways too. It's not the main emphasis. But he saves him from death a couple times too. There's grace all over this. None of it deserved. As Paul would later write, 1 Timothy 1, the grace of the Lord overflowed to me like a river at flood stage, rushing down, washing away all of his sin, all of his pride. He's humbled changes the direction of his life all by grace. God is amazing to give Saul this, all of this. But this passage isn't just about saving grace. You need to add in an adjective, one adjective to make especially clear what saving grace is. It is sovereign saving grace. Saul is saved by sovereign grace. That's important. Grace that just because, only because it comes from God himself, because it comes from God, it is grace that reigns. It is grace that overcomes. It is grace that is omnipotent. It is grace that is unstoppable, irresistible. It is not a grace that is responsive. It doesn't wait for change and then come. It causes change. That's clear in Saul's life. 
It is not grace that waits for faith to arise. It is grace that precedes faith. On the road to Damascus, Saul doesn't believe a word of this. Not a little bit, not a halfway, none. He doesn't believe any of it until something happens and then suddenly he does. What happens? God steps in and pours grace on him. God does. Just like everybody else, Saul is saved by grace through faith. But which comes first? Grace does, not faith. Grace comes, then he believes. That's really important to understand. Listen to how he describes this. These are Saul's, Paul's own words, and he's writing about people in general. But you hear him write this and you think, where did he get this imagery from his own story? These are, these are his words describing how this process of grace and salvation happens. Talk talked about this passage before, 2 Corinthians 4, verses 4 to 6. Unbelievers, just like Saul was, are blind in their minds and cannot see the light of the gospel of the glory of Christ. That's where Saul was. That's where Paul was when he was unbelieving Saul. Until God comes in and very literally knocks him down, humbles him, and then reveals something to him. As he put it later, he says in Galatians 1, It pleased God to reveal to me his Son, God decided to do something, to reveal to me his son. Language of Corinthians might put it like this. God who said, let light shine into darkness, shone into me and I saw. That's right off the Damascus road. Generalized to describe all conversions. Grace comes and then sight comes and then faith comes. It is sovereign grace that carries away blindness. It doesn't wait for blindness to go away itself and then give grace. It's really important to understand this. And understand, as we're, as we're talking about all this, we're talking about Jesus triumphantly appearing and, and entering into him. We're dancing all around the edges of the doctrines of election, predestination. Those words aren't in this text. They aren't in last week's passage, but we're moving all around the edges of it, seeing those things at work here. So we could talk more about that, but we're not going to. We're going to stay right here and say, what are we supposed to do with sovereign grace? Grace that comes from God and changes people. doesn't wait for people to change first and then come. What are we supposed to do with that? I think there are two things that come to my mind. Two applications, a, a personal one and a missional one. Personally, personally, there's something here that occurs to me when I read verse 16. He says to him, For I will show you how much he must suffer for the sake of my name. So there, there are two things going on here. There's the grace of God coming to Saul and a declared path of suffering coming to Saul. These things fit together here like this. Th think about, what do we usually do when we suffer? We complain. Usually, not always, we often complain. We think, my life is terrible. Woe is me. Maybe we long for the grass that's greener on the other side. In some sense, we're, we're not content here. Maybe we even blame God for it. After all, you could have stopped this, but you didn't. Why not? You brought this to me. Why won't you answer my prayers and change these things, make them better? It's possible that we begin to blame God, too. Whether that be from, from the mission that he's assigned to us, as, with, as is with Saul, or just any suffering in, in all of life. We suffer. We hurt. Things happen in life that are painful, that are sorrowing. That's one reality. And right next to it is the reality that God has poured sovereign saving grace on me. 
What happens when you put those things together? Here's what happens in my life when I put those things together. I, I can look at these things and I say, yes, this life is hard. But, on the other hand, something remarkable and life-changing has happened to me that I did not earn, did not even think of, didn't pursue, didn't uh, half-merit. Something happened to me that was given to me that's remarkable. And now I stand with this God who saved me because he wanted to save me. Who loves me because he wanted to love me. I am so much with him, all by his design, all by his working, not by mine. He said, he's so much with me that the suffering that I go through, he identifies with and says, that's my suffering. Whether it's you being persecuted, I'm being persecuted. It's you going through something, I'm going through it with you. He's so close to me that when I move over here, in my mind at least, there is some sort of a, of a yes, but thing that happens. Yes, this is hard, but I have a God that is so good to me and so much with me that I'm, I'm not getting ripped off. I'm not getting shortchanged. I'm not getting abandoned. I'm not being unloved. I can't be. Look at this. He wouldn't do this and then abandon me to this, to this hardship. He must be with me in it for some purpose, for some reason. There's some things in my mind there that I, I don't exactly know how A connects to B, connects to C, connects to D, but at the end, I find some relief. I say, if the gospel is true, if he has worked to save me by his work, somehow that relieves some of the, the pain in the pain. It allows me to, as Paul would put it, to be sorrowing but rejoicing at the same time. Not only sorrowing. When I find myself complaining, I say, what do I actually have to complain about? Yeah, this, but this Look at this. Seems to me that if you can hold these two things in your mind at the same time, if you hold this grace in your mind, a grace that you didn't earn and can't lose because you didn't earn it to start with, if you hold that in your mind right next to the suffering, it enables it to be endurable, even purposeful. Even, I would go a step further and say, it provides the foundation by which you can step into something that's going to cause suffering, knowing my heart is actually fastened over here to this God who deals with me in grace. Follow that last part. Because in Saul's life, those two things are, are really important. He never forgets the story. Tells it all the time. While he's being shipwrecked and stoned, etc., I have this suffering, yes, but I have a God who has poured grace on me like a flooded river. Sent me into this, yes, but not alone. Comes with me, suffers along with me. My heart fastened to him can endure this. I don't know if, I don't know if I've communicated that very well or not. It's kind of hard for me to, as I said, I don't know how exactly all those dots connect but there's some connection there between this gospel that comes by grace to me and viewing life that's hard without complaining and without sorrowing excessively. There's a balance there. The personal angle. The missional angle, I think, begins to move us beyond just ourselves to other people. And we look at people who are lost causes and say, no way that guy can be saved. No, no way. This story, though, says something other. We should hope and trust in this grace. When we look at friends or loved ones who aren't believers, we are often prone to write people off. 
think that they're way, way out there. And so we stop praying for them. We stop witnessing to them. We stop serving them. We stop loving them. We kind of draw back into ourselves. That's too hard. He's too far gone, etc., etc. This passage should encourage us. Nobody's beyond means. Nobody's beyond hope. Nobody's too far out there or lost so much that they can't be found. If God wants to awaken them in a moment, he will. And he will use means. That's coming to the second point here. But this should, this should speak to you. You should be reminded of this story and have hope in witness. Great hope in witness. That's how Paul takes it. Second Timothy talks about how, how I endure everything for the sake of the elect that they too might obtain salvation as in Christ Jesus. There are elect out there. That's Paul's word, not mine. And for their sake, knowing that they're out there somewhere, I endure everything, all the suffering that's been appointed to him. He fastens his heart on Christ and the grace poured out on him, steps out, trusting that same grace to seek and save certain ones. Who knows who? He doesn't. So he endures everything for everybody preaches to a crowd that's going to stone him, knowing that somebody out there will be awakened by this. He's banking everything on the sovereign grace of God. Not in his own persuasive words. He's banking everything on God's grace. Gives him hope in mission. First question, how is Saul saved? And the answer is, he is saved by sovereign grace. That should be a place for us to anchor our own hearts, to praise, to worship, to revel in, and it should be something that we lean on as we step out to speak to other people, knowing that we have a sovereign power behind us who will do exactly whatever he wants to do. His word will not go out and come back empty. It will triumph. It's the first question. Second question is of particular importance to where we are in the book of Acts. Let me give it and then explain it. Why does God save Saul? He saves him by sovereign grace. Why? The answer is not just to have Saul saved. This is obvious. This is obvious from the story. It's obvious from lots of other things that we're looking at in the, in the Bible, in John and Acts, that we constantly forget this. Why is Saul saved? Not just so that Saul can be saved. Yes, he's concerned to save Saul. But clearly, he saves him because, here's the answer, Jesus is committed to gathering in all of his lost sheep from everywhere. You want to put it in a word, why is Saul saved? Because of the Gentiles. Jesus is concerned about Gentiles, so he saves Paul, Saul. He's going to use him. Recall what Jesus said in John chapter 10, verse 16. The context there is Jesus describing himself as the good shepherd. He's talking about how the good shepherd gathers in all of his sheep and he protects them. And clearly he's, t- he's talking to people and he means not everybody's my sheep. Not everybody's one of my sheep. But I have other sheep that aren't right here, right around us in Israel. I have other sheep who are in other folds, he says. I must go and gather them also. I'm going to go, I'm going to get them and bring them back. And they'll be joined together. And he says there will be one flock and one shepherd. Sheep from everywhere gathered under the shepherding of Jesus. This is the heart of God. To seek and to save and to gather back all of his sheep from everywhere they've been scattered to. He's going to go and do that, and he will do it, he says. How is he going to do that? Acts 1 8. You will be my witnesses in Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, and the ends of the earth. This is, remember, the book of Acts is telling us what Jesus continues to do from heaven. It's Jesus doing it through us. You will be my witnesses. You especially, Saul. Saul's a special guy. But he's not so unique that we have no connection to him. He's a special guy. 
uniquely prepared. Jesus causes him to be born in a Gentile city, a Greek city. So he's of that culture in a Jewish family that's really concerned to educate him in the law and in Hebrew. And they ship him off to Jerusalem. So he's bicultural, extremely religious, a Pharisee, the highest education available to someone in his day. He also was born, remarkably, he was born to inherit Roman citizenship, which is very rare. So he's got that going for him too. He's, he's culturally Greek, culturally Hebrew, speaks both languages, and is a Roman. That's amazing. And he's zealous. God gave him the gift of singleness. God gave him the energy of ten men. The tenacity of a pit bull. The eloquence of a statesman. The mind of a lawyer. This is a uniquely shaped guy. And then he says, and now I claim you. He's up to something for the sake of something else. I claim you, I give you my spirit, and I want you to carry my name to the Gentiles. You're unique. Saul was very clear about this. I'm working on the connection between salvation and purpose here. Saul was very clear about this from the very beginning. Verse 6, go into the city, I'm going to tell you what you are to do. Not, now you're saved. Go about your business. I'm going to tell you what you are to do. He's clear, I've got a mission from the very beginning. When he tells the story in, in 26.16, we learn that actually even on the road, Jesus told him the mission. In essence, you're going to go to the Gentiles. Ananias is clear about this from the very beginning. God tells him, tell Saul he's my chosen instrument to the Gentiles and the kings and the Jews. Saul immediately then begins to take up that task of preaching boldly. It says that several times. Preaching, 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 preaching. Christ. Jesus is the Christ. When he writes about it later, Galatians 1, he says, I already mentioned this first part of the verse, he revealed his son to me in order that purpose, not so that I'd be saved, but in order that I might preach him among the Gentiles. Purpose. 1 Timothy 1, verse 14, the grace of our Lord overflowed for me. I received mercy for this reason purpose, that in me as the foremost of sinners, Jesus Christ might display his profound patience. Purpose, flooded by grace and mercy for a reason, for a mission. Sovereignly saving Saul. <laughs> Sovereignly saving Saul. For the sake of saving Gentiles. He saves one lost cause to get at a whole bunch of other ones. Now, that's all. Saul's unique. We need to make one little connection here, though, for us to get into this passage. Because it's very easy for us to say, man, all that stuff you just said, the, the bicultural thing, the Roman citizen, the, the unique character, personality, whatnot, education, that's all him. None of us are him. Well, that's true. But he saves him for the sake of reaching the Gentiles? Is the mission of reaching the Gentiles over? That's, that's the key right there. Is it over? No. Did it end when Saul died? No. God is still about the mission of reaching the Gentiles, about reaching everybody on the globe. He's still about that. That is still his purpose. What's his chosen instrument today? The church, us. You shall be my witnesses. That's all of us, all, in, in different ways. None of us are just like him, sure. None of us have his same gifts and abilities. Few of us do. That's right. The same mission, the same connection, saved for a purpose, we have to get. What does that mean practically? It means that every one of us here should be going through the day thinking, 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 thinking. I'm saved for a purpose. 
What's the purpose? To make Christ's name great among the nations. Right here. Overseas. In my neighborhood. In my office place. We have to think like that. Moment by moment by moment. And you know that. I've said that about a hundred times. I know that. But I'm really aware how easy it is for me to forget it. I'm going to leave here today. You're going to leave here today. And I'm going to think, now I can go home. And I can go about my business. And this mission, for the sake of the Gentiles, his name among the Gentiles, I'm going to set that over here, and I'm going to come back to it Tuesday morning when it's, I've come back to my study here. Hopefully I won't. I just said this. Hopefully I won't do that. But I very commonly do, and I bet you do too. I'm not telling you anything you don't know. I'm not telling you anything you haven't heard last week or the week before, the week before that. We're saved for a purpose to be the means that God uses to reach the Gentiles, to reach the nations, to reach his elect sheep scattered throughout the globe. We have no idea who they are. So we endure everything for them. And we can do that if our hearts are fixed on Christ and his amazing grace for us. You've been saved from something. You've been saved from sin and wrath. You've been saved to someone. You've been saved to Christ, relationship with him. And you've been saved for something. For the sake of making Christ's name known among the nations. Tell of this grace. Tell of it. Sometimes in in long, complete gospel presentations, sometimes in little snippets. Tell of it. Live as a champion of this grace. Live amazed by it. Live with it on your lips because it just is amazing to you. We are to praise and hope in and tell of the glorious grace of God. Let me pray. Thank you for listening to this message by Pastor Steve Clark of the Evangelical Free Church of Salt Lake City in Salt Lake City, Utah. Feel free to make copies of this message to give to others, but please do not charge for these copies or alter the content in any way without permission. We invite you to visit our website at www.slcebfree.org or call us directly at area code 801-943-0091. Our mailing address is Evangelical Free Church of Salt Lake City, 6515 South Lion Lane, Salt Lake City, Utah, 84121.